0: Hello and welcome to this very special November edition of Rich Pickings. Yes, it's that time of year when we look ahead and determine what the big investing themes of the next 12 months will be. 2020 has been an odd year, to say the least, but as the world edges back to normality, there's a picture emerging of what 2021 will look like. To help us develop that image, today we're going to hear from senior members of Fidelity International's investment team. What are the trends of 2021 that they think investors should be watching? Which regions, sectors and markets stand to do best as they seize the new reality? Listen on to find out. Well, joining me in the UK are Steve Ellis, Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income, and Anna Stupnitska, Global Economist. And on the line from Singapore is Paris Anand, Chief Investment Officer, Asia Pacific. Welcome to you all. Hi, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Before we look forward, let's take a quick look back at the year almost gone, a year I'm sure most of us will be happy to see the back of. Uh, Anna, first of all, what's been your most memorable moment of 2020?
1: It was um, at the beginning of March um, here in the UK, watching the Swan Lake Ballet, the Royal Opera House. And it was actually quite amazing because COVID was already around, but it was uh, fully sold out, lots of people, no masks, and it feels quite surreal now.
0: And possibly the last cultural events that it you was. went to in the year. Yes. Um, how about uh, Paris? What about you in Asia? Well, I think, Richard, doesn't get more intense than the experience
2: of the first time you, you have a lockdown with your children and there are homeschooling and you are based in Asia where space is a premium. It was actually great to, to, to see how as a family, we found opportunities to making use of all the available space, like my son and I playing uh, football on the balcony, or we invented the game of balloon tennis, or uh, cooking with the with the family. All of these things were, I, I think, you know, made for made for highly memorable experience. And on another level, Richard, I think what we saw in the wake of the George Floyd killing and the Black Lives Matter movement, I think, and and I hope, have created a meaningful and lasting change and focus on you know what has been an area within society that has gone uh, too long ignored so hopefully there's some positive news to come out of that.
0: So a year in which many things have changed and that's uh, perhaps one of the ones that uh, that we hope will have changed for the for the better and Steve finally coming to you one thing that defines 2020 for you.
3: Um, well, I think on the personal level, it has to be sailing around the Isle of Wight with both of my sons, first time we've ever done it together, a uh, real bonding moment. Um, but I think for markets, I, th- I think it has to go back to the beginning of March. I think it was around about the 9th of March when we saw that dramatic fall in uh, US Treasury yields, the 10-year yields. If you remember, you know we started the year with 10-year yields near 2%. And then, just as the COVID lockdown started to to kick in and the realization there was going to be a massive impairment to growth, we saw ten-year yields fall dramatically. And then, on that one day in March, uh, we saw a, like a f- over 40, 40 basis point decline in ten-year yields to a low of thirty-two basis points, which is you know just off the off the charts. Um, so I think you know that that signals like the turning point for me. Uh, for markets where we touch that very low level in, in uh,
0: US Treasury yields. Amazing numbers. Well, um, let's talk about some numbers now. And I guess we're going to come to you. There's been a lot of work by the macro team at Fidelity to forecast growth trajectories in 2021. Not a task I envy you when every continuum, every comparator has been broken, a bit like um, Steve was just highlighting there. So what are, what are your forecasts for the coming year?
1: I would say that um, there is still a lot of uncertainty around uh, the growth trajectory. And again, it's still dependent uh, on the evolution of the virus and uh, related restrictions. uh, And of course, crucially on the vaccine uh, rollout, uptake, distribution, uh, among other things, such as uh, policy support. Uh, When we look at um, quarterly growth, we expect that things will get worse through the winter before they get better in the spring. Uh, So we're already looking at uh, very slow growth or perhaps even negative uh, throughout Europe in Q4 um, and still slow growth in Q1 uh, of 21. And then as restrictions are slowly eased, we're looking for some acceleration through the spring. However, I I would say um, our firm call uh, has been and remains that uh, the vaccine uh, is likely to only see broad distribution and rollout uh, from mid twenty one at earliest, um so we don't expect uh, the restrictions on mobility to be lifted completely across the world before the second half of the year, and that has implications for uh, activity uh, which should see some acceleration as obviously economies open up, but not until late in the year.
0: So, jam day after tomorrow or day after many tomorrows, um, perhaps.
1: Yeah, I wanted to say that um, looking at the overall growth um, for the year, I think the IMF is expecting um, 5.4, according to the latest projections, that's for global growth. Um, I think the risks are actually quite balanced uh, throughout the whole year. This year, we've been saying that, that risks ask you to the downside, but now we see risks uh, quite balanced uh, on the upside. Of course, um, uh, an earlier and more successful rollout of the vaccine um, means that economists can return to some sort of normal post-COVID normal earlier, uh, but at the same time, uh, again, uh, some issues around vaccine distribution, uptake, its effectiveness uh, can really undermine the recovery through the year. Uh, so I think this is a, a, a very a crucial change in the view that uh, there's still a lot of uncertainty, but the risks are quite balanced.
0: And quite different patterns um, in different parts of the world as well in in, in that recovery. Indeed,
1: and we have been uh, highlighting China and Asia more generally this year, uh, as we've been saying, um, first in, first out. Uh, And China will, as we move into next year, remain uh, this exception to the rule uh, where virus um, has been uh, contained with stimulus and uh, very strict measures. Um, And we've already been seeing Um, good growth uh, trajectory there, and that's what we expect, Uh, growth around um, uh, 8% or so in China in 2021, and uh, of course, uh, uh, better growth in that part of the world also means that there will be more demand uh, and hopefully better prospects for global trade elsewhere.
0: Oh, Paris. Um, Asia has certainly accelerated out of the virus, and that gap between Asia and the rest of the world has been one of the themes in, in 2020. What are the risks to um, the path that Anna just set out there of of Asia continuing this trend in twenty twenty one?
2: Yeah, so I think I actually, you know, if, if we if we take it at the level of Asian leadership, I think that the um, that path I think is pretty well set. So do I see a lot of risks to that scenario? N- no, I don't. Especially when you consider uh, exactly as Anna said that we are in a situation where. Some of the preconditions for being able to return to normal economic activity are closer to us today than they were previously. So, of course, you've always got the risk of of second waves and the like. But the stark difference in terms of pandemic management and the impact of the pandemic in big parts of the region and hence the broad base and broadening economic recovery that we're seeing in the region, I think that that trend is is very much in place. Um, you know, you could argue in terms of magnitude of recovery, there's maybe a greater risk to, you know, the the knock on impacts of uh, deeper recessions in the US and Europe. But in terms of the issue of Asia leadership, I think that that trend is, is well set.
0: And there is one exception, one major country in Asia that hasn't um, done so well. And that's India it's struggling to, to to follow suit of the, the rest of the region.
2: Why is that? So I think for a country like India, we've clearly seen the impact of the pandemic being uh, more acute than we've seen in, in other parts of the region. Having said that, even when you look at it adjusted for the size of population, the impact of the pandemic has been relatively controlled. You know, we often talk about the pandemic revealing um, sort of pre-existing issues, whether that's at an individual level or that's sort of an economy or societal level. And clearly with, with India, you know, it's, it's that much further behind in its aggregate um, economic development. You know, you have still have significant issues around social inequality and all of these things will have, will have played their part in the uh, ability to sort of contain uh, the pandemic as effectively as we've seen in the more developed parts of, of, of the region.
0: Steve, um, there's been a pattern of extraordinary monetary policy support this year from the central banks, uh, a lot of fiscal policy as well, and we were expecting waves of fiscal policy from the US, but that's been hampered by the election results there, hasn't it? It has
3: to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean we're talking about the stage five fiscal stimulus package here, um, and you know precisely what the, the size will be. And my best guess at the moment, Richard is if you of probability weighted depending on the makeup of Congress, I think we're looking at somewhere around about $2 trillion or so in fiscal stimulus, which when you think about that, that's about 9% of GDP. And then you add that on top of the existing deficit as well. So we're talking about um, a deficit of somewhere in the region of 15% of GDP uh, for next year. And, and I guess that, to a certain extent, is contingent on... Um, Republicans uh, having control of the Senate. I guess you know if uh, when you think about that for fixed income the implications, you know there's obviously you know, people have concerns about debt issuance and you know, potential pressure on the curve. And and what's what's interesting is that that you know the Treasury have actually pre-funded a lot of this already. Um, in fact, this year they they've raised about three and a half trillion dollars in Treasury issuance. Um, so a lot more than it planned to do. And as a result, what they've done with the excess is they've actually parked it on reserve of the Fed, at the, te- the Treasury General account. There's one and a half trillion dollars of excess amount of money being held at the Treasury. And so what they've said is that they're going to draw down about eight hundred and fifty billion or so of that money at the TGA in the next few months. Um, and and also use um, some, I think, six hundred fifty billion or so for pre-funding Of the fiscal deficits for next year there's some potent um, monetary and fiscal stimulus in the pipeline here which could be very good for
0: markets and anna i know that you've done a lot of work on this and the expectations and the makeup of of congress in particular and the impact that that would have on the ability of a a biden government to to spend at different levels that the the sort of sums that steve's talking about there i mean they are mind-boggling although Smaller than some of the other mind-boggling numbers that um, that you were working with. Um, what's the impact going to be?
1: Well, we think that um, the COVID relief package, uh, which is expected in early twenty-one, uh, will probably come uh, uh, somewhere below one trillion. Um, so this is uh, less than we saw in, in twenty twenty, uh, but it it will also be contingent uh, on the stage of the pandemic. Um, and availability of the vaccine. So in a way, um, if by that time there is a a vaccine and its rollout uh, is starting uh, to the vulnerable groups, there will be less incentive uh, for the Congress to pass that stimulus. So I think it still depends. And and again, I think that uh, the COVID relief stimulus is not uh, for generating recovery. It's more for helping, as we know, helping uh, households and corporates. However, um, if we do see uh, some spending on infrastructure, uh, or perhaps some uh, green-related investment, this is the kind of investment that has uh, longer-term sustainable impact for growth and in the U.S., especially given the state of infrastructure, that would be very meaningful. Um, again, the question remains. But if we, even if we see, say, one trillion investment in infrastructure over the next two years, the the fiscal multiplier uh, that is usually attached to to uh, to this kind of investment is higher than one. So if you invest invest one trillion, um, you know, you might get sort of 2 trillion gr- trillion equivalent you know in in growth so this is very significant and and very important but again it's not something that uh, will immediately boost growth and will immediately boost inflation
0: ah well, thank you, because that was the point I was hoping you were going to come on to, because um, we, we have talked about inflation in this podcast um, before in September, to both of you, actually, Steve and uh, Anna, about what the prospects were for inflation, which is, Steve, um, what you were edging towards, or disinflation. And Anna, that was, that was your view. Um, over the the short and medium term, um, have your views changed since then because um, Steve, you mentioned there about money supply yeah
3: no, my, my view hasn 't changed. I do think um, inflation is going to be in the pipeline it may it 's hard to imagine actually right now because there are deflation forces in play. I totally accept that but uh, you know when, when I look at so for example year break even inflation in the u s now is at one point seven percent so it reached back in march um it reached 0.4%. so you know market was very pessimistic thinking there's going to be strong disinflation deflation forces but here we are back at the highs now where we were at the start of the year before the whole pandemic broke out. um i guess that the reason why i'm very much in the view that we are going to see inflation and it may not happen immediately but I, it comes back to more of a monetary side uh, to be honest. When I look at money supply, M2 money supply is growing at just over 24%. I mean, it's off the charts. It's much higher than it's ever been. You know, if you look back over, you know, multiple decades, back to the 1970s, the highest it ever got back in the 70s was, I think, around about 13% year on year. So, so it's, it's really, it's really gone off the charts. I think what people are really underestimating in this cycle is the effectiveness of, that money supply growth, and the potency of quantitative easing this time around. Because, you know, when you think about the the the, the GFC, um, you know, the banks were very impaired. So they had um, loan losses amounting to about 16% of their, their loan books. Um, and, and the banks went through a period of about five years or so of recourse, of shrinking their loan books. Um, and so the QE1, QE2, and QE3 – in the US, I think about 80% was neutered by, by the banks not, not being able to pass that on and just basically passing reserve on back to the Fed. And it was very, um, ineffective as it were. So QE was, was just a bit of a, bit of a waste. And it's like my analogy is like, um, you know, turning the taps on, having the plug out in the bath, more money just went straight through the plug hole. But,
0: but banks are in better
3: shape right? No, so, no. so this time, that the banks are in, in much better shape. So you look at their liquidity position, they're t- twice as good as it was in the GFC. Um, they, they have three times the amount of capital that they have in the GFC. So, so I think this time around, you know, the banks are actually going to be adding to the liquidity impact of quantitative easing. And I think that's where people are underestimating. This time as well, Richard's, you're not only you're going to have a monetary impulse, but I do think the fiscal impulse is going to be there as well. That's a bit of a game changer. Plus, onshoring, and like, I think people are underestimating, you know, what, you know the um, the rise in inflation.
0: It's a compelling thesis, Steve. Anna, I'm going to come back to you. I, I, I know you've heard this argument before, but has it has it changed your mind?
1: No, it hasn't. And in fact, <laughs> I think um, the monetary theory of inflation has been ignored for good reason, because I don't think it works. <laughs> Uh, but we, we can have that discussion uh, in in another podcast. I do think you know. Look, I will I will believe it when I see it. Um, I think that fundamentally, it will be still incredibly difficult for central banks to generate increase in inflation on a sustainable basis, um, at least given the the near-term policies in place. Um, I think uh, I I agree with Steve on on the state of the banks relative to the global financial crisis, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that liquidity will go into the real economy on a sustainable basis. And I'm not saying uh, the COVID relief uh, package of course, it, it uh, gave a boost, boost, big boost to incomes. Uh, uh, a lot of it has been saved, and some of it will be spent as things open up. But this is a one-off boost, and I haven't really seen um, a lot of um, uh, that liquidity going into the real economy uh, to support activity and inflation going forward. But I think I have to say one interesting thing uh, in 21 will be uh, a big up in inflation in the second quarter of the year, uh, which is going to be uh, mostly due to base effects, because we saw a collapse in inflation in Q2 this year. So in year on year term, you know, this comparison will be very, very favorable. And it will be interesting to see how markets will interpret that because I think that reflation story can really run as we see those numbers. But it's it's just going to be a spike on a base effect and perhaps some pick up in activity at the time. But again, I cannot see this uh, being a sustainable trend.
0: Well, Anne and Steve, I always enjoy um, hearing you debate, Uh, but you're not going to agree. Paris, um, is there something that you can add to this discussion?
2: You know, I guess the first point I would make really when we start to think about inflation in the context of markets is to make the observation that when we look at asset prices, when we look at the prices in the market, they are essentially all in on a view that inflation doesn't recur at, at any point in, in in the future, especially when we look at sort of fixed income markets. So the extent that we are um, exploring a possibility of inflation and in aggregate rising in the future that have much more meaningful consequences in terms of the shape of markets. Having said that, I think one of the the risks that we have, you know, is is that we need to remember that we're looking at an indicator that is an aggregate of a lot of prices you know, within a an economy, whether that's a developed economy or a developing economy, that are, that are moving in lots of different directions at the same time. But if you think about one of the stories of 2020, is that we really saw significant demand destruction as a consequence of the lockdown measures that, that were put in place, which obviously means that um, uh, certain goods and services were not demanded at all but you've also seen supply destruction as well so supply chains getting interrupted and impacted and so for the first time you know consumers have experienced a need to pay up for certain goods that the availability of goods was not guaranteed. So you think about just what we've learned over the course of this year, and some of that differential experience in pricing across the economy, I think, will be more acute going forward. Another way of saying this in in, in summary is that perhaps the averages matter less going forward. They hide a much
0: more complex picture beneath. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Steve, how, how are your team of investors, how are they positioned um, as we go into 2021 um, for whichever way this goes? I mean, certainly the central banks say that they're going to be looking through any signs of inflation no. um, uh, until it's you know, properly established. So um, no change in, in rates.
3: No. Um, so at the moment, we, we, we're actually putting some break-even inflation on. It's, it's not as compelling now, but I still think over the longer term, then break even inflation could go higher so we do have some inflation exposure through break evens for example and also we've been doing it through the the link of bonds themselves so you know my big thesis for this year was that um central banks would have to drive real yields more and more negative to keep the plate spinning to service the debt so they have that risk free rate low in order to to you know keep um financial conditions loose to get credit spreads tighter to enable the system to function So that that I think is um, you know it's now kind of playing out. Um, So as we go into next year, we are still relatively constructive on credit spreads. We think there's some juice there, um, particularly in you know some areas like China high yield, for example. Um, But um, in terms, and if you think about duration or your kind of interest rate exposure here, we're, we're we're fairly neutral. Um, And I do think it comes on to another topic. If I think about the main risks for for next year, my concern is that we get a yield curve tantrum. In other words, we do see the evidence of inflation picking up, whether it's second quarter, as um, Anna says, because of base effects. But I I do think that that you will start seeing evidence of inflation coming through, in which case we could see some yield curve steepening and, you know, general... um, uh, concerns that there may be, have to be some rollback of the huge monetary accommodation that we've seen in the past year or so. You know, We could see Treasury yields, which are 10-year yields now at 90 basis points or so in the US. We could see yields, say, 1.5%, maybe even get towards 2% or so. And I think that in itself could create some real problems for markets, tighten financial conditions, your risk-free rate goes higher, so all a-
0: all risk assets you know, will suffer as a result. You're highlighting moves at the Fed, which, of course, influences rates around the world. Um, Paris, Anna already set out quite a different path for Asia in 2021. What are the levers that are available to policymakers um, in Asia to manage any sudden shift in dynamics, as, as Steve was um, was highlighting, might happen?
2: Well, well, I think, Richard, the first thing to really point to is how different has been the monetary and the fiscal response to the crisis across Asia. And, you know, if you think about, especially the PBOC and its decision not to monetize the crisis, that has very meaningful implications, both in terms of the way that we as investors assess the economy in Asia, but also, you know, when we think about how does the For example, the fixed income markets, how are they functioning? You know, one of the consequences of um, extensive uh, market intervention by other central banks globally is that some of the characteristics of fixed income markets and the diversification that they often offer portfolios has broken down in that process. But that's not very much not what we see in uh, around the region. So, if you look at, uh, for example, the onshore China bond market is functioning like a normal uh, bond market. So, I think that that in itself will create and stimulate demand, especially for foreign capital to be able to sort of access um, not only the yields but the diversification that that market
0: offers. What about though? The high levels of debt, because um, when you've got central banks printing money, you've got um, governments um, borrowing enormous amounts to um, prop up economies. What effect will that have on um, on economies in twenty twenty one? I mean, in in Asia, and then I'll, Anna, I'll come to you for the for the rest of the world.
2: So, so let's, let's 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 take a step back, Richard, with your question, and sort of just try and ask ourselves the question about you know what are we seeing emerging, you know over the course of 2020 and what you can clearly see is that a decision for example in big parts of Asia not to um, undertake these levels of monetary or fiscal stimulus mean that there is a much greater confidence and ability to have a cycle play out whereas actually if we look at places like the US or Europe There's a level of, you know, a need to want to support economies in the short term, even support the markets in the short term. There is an aversion to the, you know, to having a sort of a negative cycle. And to me, that that sort of speaks a little bit, not just to the differences in economic strategy, but the differences in political environment. You know, if you are in, as we know, uh, sort of President of the United States, you know, you're constantly looking at your approval ratings, you're constantly looking for that need to be considered sort of popular um, whereas, you know, that doesn't exist, you know, in, in other parts of the world across Asia, you know, even in, you know, like Singapore, where you have a sort of procedural democracy, or even when you've got sort of what I would say are still, you know, gold standard sort of democracies in different parts of the region, governments still have a, I would say, a longer range mandate with the ability to take somewhat sort of unpopular decisions in the short term for the benefit of of, of long term good. And you know I think one of the interesting aspects of the economic strategy that we're seeing in places like europe and 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 uh, and the u s is that once you start down that road. It's very difficult to kind of to, to to wind wind your way back from it.
0: So a time of great bifurcation, perhaps in the paths that um, that these two two areas are taking. And Anna, the impact of the the debt overhang, um, the, the vast amounts of spending that eventually will have to be recouped, will it?
1: So I think the, one of the biggest lessons uh, after the fin- global financial crisis uh, that was learned by the policymakers is that. Um, uh, austerity is not very politically popular, but also it doesn't necessarily work at the time when uh, you still have a uh, uh, significant output gap. So you need to wait for the economists to recover uh, before potentially uh, trying to tackle uh, those debt levels. So I actually think that in the sh- in the shorter term, you know, next year we're talking about next year, there won't be much focus on the levels of, of debt.
0: No, but my my point is because you're right, it's a change in ideology almost. Um, you know, the IMF, um, World Bank meetings that was, you know, one of the big themes. Don't worry about austerity, which was, um, you know, a, a marked change from their old tune. But but Steve, um, at some point. These levels of debt will come back to, to bite us unless they get written off. Will it be that some sort of debt jubilee?
3: Yeah, there's no easy way out of this, I have to say. And I, I rack my brains trying to think what well, the end game is here. Um, all, all I can say is that, um, you know, as I mentioned, debt levels are extremely high and getting getting even higher. Economies are in balance sheet recessions, meaning meaning that you know, normally you try and grow out of a problem like this. Um, that nominal GDP, your denominator, would be high, and so you can reduce your debt, but. We have zombified economies, partly because we've seen, you know, government debts increase very sharply in debt levels, private and public sector debt. What is it now? The numbers are I think two hundred and sixty trillion dollars of debt, which is three hundred and thirty percent of GDP. So there's no easy way out. What has to happen though is you have to have very low refinancing rates. You need to have very accommodative monetary policy, you have to keep the plate spinning that way, um, in order to give you know to, to keep this going. Um you know, the the alternatives are debt moratoriums, write downs, you know, which are extremely unpalatable. I just, I, I cannot see that ever happening. So there's just hope and pray that we can either inflate way out of the system, which, you know, I do think inflation will come into the
0: system. Because that would erode the value of the debt.
3: It, it would do, but it's not a very palatable way of doing it because it's the, the lower, you know, lower income groups that are going to feel the hit from that. So that's just going to increased polarization and, and um, populism, as it were. Um, so, so I think um, the other way that they're going to do this is, there's going to be, you know, eventually, well, in fact, we're probably already there is MMT, modern monetarist theory, you know, we need to monetize debt, and central banks will take it on their balance sheets, and we'll go get into this ever increasing, you know, vicious downward spiral where debt levels will, will just get even higher, they'll go on central banks balance sheets, Yields will stay extremely low, barring the tape at the yield curve tantrum that I'm talking about next year, which I think will be very temporary because central banks will have to come in and do yield curve control. It's going to be low rates for a long period of time.
1: I just want to say that um, uh, the current hope of the policymakers is, I think, is uh, to actually have somewhat higher inflation above the target. And uh, keeping um, uh, real rates uh, deeply negative, which would generate higher real growth. And the combination of higher inflation and higher growth uh, should, in theory, help inflate away some of the debt. But at the same time, with with the Fed's new framework, for example, where um, they want to keep a uh, Uh, to aim to keep unemployment very low, that should also, uh, that growth should benefit low income. So this is a very hard, very, very tricky equilibrium to get onto. But this is the current hope of the policymakers.
0: Well, let's hope they get it right. Um, We're going to stay on that theme, though, of inflation and looking at one specific asset class and how it approaches that um, that challenge. Real estate has faced some unique challenges during the pandemic. Retail premises have been closed, offices shuttered and hotels have lain dormant. I caught up earlier with Fidelity's head of real estate, Neil Cable, and started by asking him if 2020 would be the year the
4: office died. I think there was a period when uh, we were all nervous that that might well be the case but I, I think we've all calmed down a bit and a lot of people are now very desperate to get back to the office and see their colleagues and so on and I think uh, broadly the consensus in the real estate industry which which I agree with is it's not it's not the year the office died it's the year that uh, some of the things that were already happening got rapidly accelerated working from home being a, a good example and also um that you know we we'll, we may look back on this year as being the year when it was the catalyst for certain things happening, like redesigning of office spaces to to accommodate more collaborative space, et cetera.
0: so offices aren't dead, we still need somewhere to to come together um either to um build relationships with um with colleagues or the creative aspects of working together. What does the future of the office look like then?
4: I, I almost think of it that the the disruptive trends themselves got disrupted this year, and and people forget that you know working from home was already increasing by three to four percent per year. You know, for a long time we've been getting rid of cellular offices and working in open plan. Most new modern offices do have collaborative space, breakout space where you can hunker down with your colleagues for a quick chat rather than have to book a meeting room and so on. Um, but boy, did all of those trends really get disrupted? You know, all of a sudden, instead of three to four percent per year, with working from home being at the margin, ninety percent plus of us were doing it. And actually, a lot of times in the past, when um, there has been disruption to the way offices have been used, for example, the move from the move to open plan, um, what has actually happened is the aggregate demand has subsequently increased. And when you think about it, one of the reasons we're going to be doing all of this is to make people happier, to increase well-being, to increase productivity, to make businesses more profitable. And if that happens, although the the, the average usage per person of an office might decrease, um, actually in aggregate, the the economy should be expanding, companies should be doing well, and, and in absolute terms, we might just need the amount of offices we've got, if not more
0: so fewer people in the same uh the same floor area would that affect rents though
4: um possibly possibly not one of the biggest trends we've seen which has been very disruptive over the last 25 years has been the shortening of leases and the flexibility of leases and i can see that being quite a critical factor in future where um you know you could see turnover-related leases becoming much more common in the office sector, for example, whereas that's really been a retail sector phenomenon in the past.
0: So the owners will have to become a little bit more more flexible in the way that they treat their their, their tenants. Uh, You mentioned retail there. Um, Now, obviously, retail suffers when People aren't allowed by law to go to the shops, but it's a little bit more complicated than that, I understand.
4: Yes, what's really mattered this time is whether you've had discretionary or non-discretionary retail. If it's a luxury item, um, that's discretionary. You don't have to buy it. And um, certainly those shops were forced to, to close, certainly in an early lockdown. So, you know, bang, killed, killed the sector. And um, the amount of rent we collected as a landlord fell radically if we had exposure to those tenants. If, however, we had supermarkets, or DIY um, operations, Um, they're fine. They paid their rent on time um, because everyone needs to eat. And actually, during lockdown, um, a lot of the DIY stores stayed open and people started, you know, fixing stuff in the house that they hadn't fixed. Even furniture retailers have done quite well.
0: What about returns, though? Because we're seeing yields um, fall ever further, you know, starting with central banks and where they're putting interest rates. What does real estate um, uh, offer investors when you're seeing yields continue their, their downward uh,
4: trend? So, so overall, um, rents have only fallen by a couple of percent so far. Um, but I think, I think, again, that masks, you know, perhaps 10, 15, 20% falls in some retail sectors. Um, some increases in logistics sectors. So, you know, logistics is the new retail. We, we, how many Amazon deliveries have you had in the last nine months? Quite a few. Far too many. Exactly, too many. As, as have most of us. That's all coming from a warehouse and uh, increasing amounts of where, warehouse space are needed. Um, construction is picking up in in, in that sector. Um, so that's actually quite a buoyant part of the market. And in answer to your question, what, what does it offer investors? It still offers investors a relatively high yield compared to bonds and similar to equities in some cases, but with certainly... As perception is that with a lot less risk and a lot less volatility. So that sustainability of income is key.
0: uh, We're going to come on to sustainability in a moment, but perhaps in a slightly different way. But what about inflation? Because rents, um, I always think of them as being uh, commercial rents, as being hedged against inflation, because um, they are usually tied to a measure such as CPI, aren't they?
4: Certainly in continental Europe, increasingly in the UK, but it's still a minority of leases in the UK. Um, But even then, I think your perception is broadly right um, that rents tend to rise when we get inflation in the economy, even if it's not indexed on leases. But it's great if you've got that indexation. But it's a very good question, a very pertinent question, because um, at the moment, I think the vast majority of people accept that there's hardly going to be any inflation in, in European economies, certainly, if not globally, for the next couple of years. And actually, they're worried more about disinflation. So nobody's really worried about inflation picking up. But actually, this should be vexing real estate investors because we have to position portfolios now for the longer term with leases typically that could go three, four, five, sometimes 10, 15 years into the future. And traditionally, over the last X number of years, but decades, leases have been indexed and increasingly over the last few years with a cap on on that indexation. That might typically be three or 4%. And people have been kind of, not worried about that because you know inflation's been vanquished. Um, it's it's you know inflation targets are two percent typically of uh, central banks, um, and they haven't really been worried about agreeing to a cap of four percent. What, what I'm quite worried about is after this period of very low inflation and potentially even disinflation. Might it, might that genie be out of the bottle? Um, and, you know, I'm an economics student of the eighties and a child of the seventies. You know, I, I see it like a, a troll under the bridge looming out. You know, is, is it going to come back? And if it does, you've got to position your portfolio now to make sure you, you're not overexposed to, to caps of inflation and leases. Um, now you might not be able to avoid it completely. Um, but so that it's again, it's a nuanced answer. Yes, we're, we'll be largely hedged against inflation. And that's a f- fantastic attraction. If your view is inflation is not going to get above three or four percent. If it starts to get higher than that you know, start to get a little bit more concerned and scrutinise things a bit more closely.
0: Forever scarred by high inflation, um, you and the, the people of Germany, Neil. One last thing, you alluded to sustainability. Um, and I, I want to talk about it with the lens of ESG, environmental, social and governance. I mean, how does that play out in real estate?
4: This is a year when the ESG phenomenon in real estate rapidly accelerated like a lot of the other trends I'm talking about. But I think there was a, a quite significant change and I think that changes that quite a few investors are now explicitly saying that they will trade some financial performance, i.e., they'll accept low, slightly lower returns if you can evidence that you're measuring the impact you're having in terms of ESG. And it used to be just the E, really. You know, we've talked before, Richard, about 40% of carbon emissions coming from buildings. Well, actually, now people are saying, well, actually, four of that 40 is just in the building materials. You know, 10 of that 40 is in the actual operation of the building. So what are you doing about that? You know, are you installing lighting? Are you recycling waste on on site? Um, How do your employees get to work? And partly due to the pandemic, people are now asking about the the whole approach to well-being and how you, uh, as a landlord, whether it's in the lease or not, you know, are you putting in place uh, things in your building which will look after the people occupying that building? And until recently, it's been a little bit of a landlord, you know, stop having carbon emissions belching out your building. Now you have to be joined up with the tenants themselves, the leases, the lease obligations, you know, more green lease clauses coming in. The regulators are starting to get very interested in how they scrutinise you and measure you and what you're telling clients about the sustainability of your buildings. And ultimately, all of that leads to why people are investing anyway, which is about sustainability of income. And again, that sustainability of income has been emphasised even more this year.
0: Neil Cable talking to me earlier. Now, Paris, I wanted to pick up on something that Neil touched on. Europe has been engaged with ESG for some time. How will the theme of sustainable investing develop in Asia in 2021?
2: Well, it's it's interesting, Richard. If we just look even over the last few months and we um, consider, for example, China and the extent to which sustainability featured as part of the 14 five-year plan, you can see that... um, broader areas of sustainability, but specifically climate change, I think is going to become central to economic strategy across the region. We've seen similar commitments by Japan and South Korea, again, targeting sort of net zero by by 2050. So again, a part of the world which historically people have seen as lagging around the area of sustainability and, and climate change, I would
0: say, is, is increasingly taking up a leadership position. And Steve, how do you think Sustainable investing in fixed income markets will develop in the coming year.
3: Well, look, it's already um, uh, becoming increasingly important within fixed income. You know, we're, we're looking to incorporate it across um, our investment process for all conventional funds. That's a challenge in its own right. But um, I guess we're doing it for you know not just for kind of the, the right reasons, the moral reasons, but you know we've done many empirical studies trying to look at the the risk re- reward profile for. Investing in ESG compliant uh, instruments, and whilst you might sacrifice some short-term yield, the longer-term payoff is uh, extremely good because you you know you reduce drawdowns from certain credits as well. So so I think it's going to become more and more mainstream. Paris,
2: yeah, and I think that it start will will also start to color a conversation like this where we where we are asking ourselves about questions of growth. Uh, you know, it'll start to put into um, the centre of people's consideration than the nature of inclusion rather than growth, the, the, the true cost of, of growth. And so, you know, one of the things that is really important that we think about as, as investors and as an organisation is to r- arguably sort of redefine what you know healthy vibrant economic progress looks like in the future relative to arguably what we've looked the way we've assessed it in the past and and maybe using different uh, metrics and different methodologies to reflect a healthy economy in the future relative to what we've what we've what we've been used to in the past
0: anna
1: Yeah, I wanted to say that um, we are seeing a dramatic shift in policymaking focus uh, in terms of uh, climate change. Uh, Europe is taking the lead. Um, on tackling climate change as part of the Green New Deal, uh, we will um, hopefully have uh, some change in the US policy stance under a new Biden administration uh, in terms of uh, domestic effort, but also international policy uh, effort. Um, We are seeing that um, central banks uh, are now rapidly developing uh, different analytical frameworks to understand the implications of climate change um, and what this means for policymakers. And I have been doing some very long-term work looking to 2100 just to understand what climate change (laughs) might mean for growth. And... um, with or without mitigation. So if there is no mitig- mitigation effort or if we do have some mitigation efforts earlier or, or later, it will have dramatic implications for growth across the world, for inflation, but also for asset allocation. And so uh, it's just so, so important to, to understand the potential implications um, and how this might affect Different, different asset classes in different regions already now, even though we're talking about a very, very long time horizon.
0: I'm going to bring us back from 80 years uh, into the future to one year into the future, if I may, and try to sort of summarise some things we've heard. I mean, um, it's very clear that 2020 was a year of enormous change, of um, not, not just the way markets were going, but of deep, fundamental directions of, of economies and, and societies. Paris, um how do you think that will play out um, in in markets in twenty twenty one? I mean, things like the trends of um, you know the U.S. tech stocks and the growth narrative that um, that once again dominated. Well, that will there be any change from that?
2: I, I think so. I think you know what what you've heard over the course of this conversation is that you know there there is still a great deal of of complexity around how the the economy in aggregate will develop over the course of the coming of the coming months. And, you know, as a consequence of that, I do think that having valuation, thinking about risk reward, uh, focusing on margin of safety as part of your investment strategy, something that, you know, seems to have gone very deeply out of fashion, I do think is something that should be part of, of, of investors' consideration. Um, I think we're also starting to learn um, two things really about some of the areas of the market that have been showing strong leadership. One is that they do have risks to their business models, they do have risks to that, you know, external regulatory environment. And the second is that, you know, perhaps some of the barriers to entry, the barriers to competition are not as, um, are not as high as, as one might sort of think. So again, I do see um, uh, some risks emerging around some parts of what we've seen as a pattern of leadership over the course of this year.
0: And Steve, um, what about fixed income? Where should clients be looking for yield well
3: there's no doubt that financial repression is going to be here to stay so it, income yield is going to be important um but it's funny that you know this year when you look at the flows into a fixed income this year they've been very much in short-dated funds with uh, defensive income so more investment grade so so investors have been very defensive about this um i think the next step the next evolution for next year will be um it, it, I think we'll have to see some stabilisation and growth here for people to push out, look for more growth-sensitive um, areas. And what I'm talking about here is things like global high yield um, and also emerging market debt. So I think that that is a prerequisite. You know, there's been very there's it's been a huge um, amount of uncertainty, the opaqueness about what the default cycle would be. Um, there was a huge amount of defaults priced in to five-year cumulative swaps, de- um, credit default swaps. You know, pe- people were thinking back in March that uh, 25% of the um, US high yield market would go into defaults in the next five years. Now that's in the teens. So I think as growth stabilizes next year, I think you'll see more um, search for income, not defensive income, but more you know go for higher yield. And the one area which I think will be very um, beneficial will benefit from this is emerging market debt because I think. You know that's going to benefit from a weak dollar, which I think is in, is set in stone now, and also from some stabilisation and growth. Okay,
0: and um, we're almost out of time. But Anna, I'm going to ask you to leave us with some bright spots in the global economy in 2021. Where are you looking for a bit of uh, a bit of optimism?
1: Well, I think uh, controversially, uh, it might be UK and European equities. Um, uh, Paris mentioned valuations, and uh, you know these are the two regions where valuations uh, have been extremely low. Um, the UK might benefit from some clarification to the Brexit saga, uh, but also uh, the benefit from uh, the pickup in global growth and uh, more service-oriented economists, um, such as the UK, will benefit from uh, easing of those mobility restrictions. So I think, quite controversially, these um, regions can do quite well.
0: Thank you, Anna, for that summary. And that brings us to the end of this podcast. Thank you to my guests, Anna Stupnitska, Paris Annan, Steve Ellis and Neil Cable. You can read the full 2021 outlook from Fidelity's investment teams online at fidelityinternational.com. The producers were Seb Morton-Clark and Sophie Brody with technical support from Alex Wilcox and Madison Fletcher. From all of us at Fidelity, goodbye.